Welcome to Clusters and Competitiveness, where we introduce you to the world of economic clusters, what they are, why they're important, and how they can bring unprecedented levels of innovation and prosperity to your region. I'm your host, Ian Gormley. Clusters and Competitiveness is produced by the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, a Canadian think tank based in Toronto. Through our conversations with those who work with and within clusters, we'll talk about what clusters can and can't do, as well as laying to rest once and for all the reasons that you can't just build a cluster from scratch. On our first episode, we start with what on the surface seems like a pretty simple question. What is a cluster? On first blush, clusters seem pretty basic and easy to understand. But as we'll see, there's a lot more to clusters than meets the eye. Because they're tricky, they're tricky monsters. They're, you know, it's a thing that... People think they know, and when you start talking to them, they, they don't. That's Paul DeFreitas, a strategist and urban economist who teaches at George Brown College's Institute Without Borders here in Toronto. As he explains, though at their core, clusters are a little more than a bunch of stuff in the same area, what they're capable of can power nations. The simplest way, just define it as a, uh, a geographically centered concentration of something. And usually when we're talking about clusters, we're talking some sort of economic sector. But at its, at its base, it's, it's just a geographic uh, concentration. So they're, they're critical in driving a sort of future economy. They drive productivity, GDP, and most importantly, innovation. So even though uh, in, in the U.S., for example, 40% of people work in what's called traded clusters, but that represents 60% of GDP and almost 100% of patents or what we'd consider uh, innovation. Now, when we say stuff in an area, we aren't talking about a group of unrelated neighborhood businesses. We're talking about interconnected sectors and industries across cities or even regions. Clusters come in in many shapes, right? The, the ones we, we typically think, uh, what we typically think is a cluster, something that's very local, very downtown. Like we, we think of the, the big banks, right? In Toronto, you would see the bank towers and you, you point at that and you say, well, there's the financial cluster. And yeah, most of it is there, but there's a whole bunch of back office stuff that happens in the suburbs around Toronto. It's not super low. I mean, it is super located there, but it doesn't mean that's the only place it happens. So clusters, you have, they, they have this, this centralism in something like the financial sector, but they also have some of them very dispersed, something like manufacturing. You'll find all over the region. It's not specific to one place, but there's so much of it. It's everywhere. It's still a cluster, but it doesn't look like a cluster until you zoom up and you see how many people are employed actually manufacturing. It's still a huge sector in, in this region. Uh, and then you have things like like the health cluster, which is actually many sort of sub-clusters. But you can clearly go downtown and you see a real high concentration of the research part but, you know, if you go out to a place like Mississauga, there's a huge uh, pharmaceutical cluster out there. And even a place like Waterloo and Hamilton, you have really uh, emerging uh, health tech. But underlying all that is a urban agglomeration or region that supports uh, all those things that all clusters need. Like if you're in a health cluster, you don't just need researchers. You also need lawyers, uh, financiers, uh, media. You need all these business supports. You need access to talent, and uh, specialized talent like that requires a large footprint to grab all the talent it requires. So underlying clusters are this really important understanding of how the region supports a cluster. One of the most common misconceptions is that clusters are synonymous with sectors or industries, that the terms are interchangeable. But as Melissa Pogue, former clusters expert with the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, explains, that's just not the case. 
So a cluster would be geographically bound. So sectors would refer to any type of industry. So if you're thinking like business services or automotive, like that would be considered an industry or a sector. But thinking about clusters more specifically, they are kind of geographically bound and they have interrelated actors. So um, as I was mentioning, some of the academic institutions, specialized suppliers, all of those types of actors working together to support the activity of the firms within the cluster. And so that would be different than necessarily just talking about an industry in general. So while Canada might boast a single tech industry or sector, it's made up of many tech clusters, including ones in the Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal regions. And unlike a diffused industry or sector, the geographic proximity of interconnected businesses acts like a magnet to both business and talent. If a cluster has emerged, chances are it's emerged because there's something unique. There's something that this place has that other places have less of. The competitive advantage is already stemming from the advantage of the location. There's something about the location, be it the talent, the clusters, the, the institutions that, that create sort of that support the innovation. There's already something unique about the place that, that enabled the cluster to emerge. Once the cluster emerged, they, they have a gravity. They almost pull in more. So it's, it's absolutely a case of the rich get richer in terms of clusters. The bigger they get, the more they pull in, the more gravitas they have. They have a competitive advantage in terms of being able to pull in talent, being able to pull in money. And that puts them in a position where, where they can compete against other centers, against other places. Put in that light, it's easy to understand why a city or region would want to develop its clusters. They drive economic growth. And while politicians, business leaders, and academics often talk up the need for more economic growth, they tend to skip over how, as well as directly benefiting businesses, that growth also indirectly benefits citizens. Here's Dorinda So, the Institute's research director. We talk a lot about competitiveness and growth because ultimately it does lead to more prosperity. When you are able to generate more revenue, in theory, you can pay your, you can hire more workers, which is good because we all want jobs. But hopefully that also means higher wages because people are more productive. And that ultimately means that the citizens of a region, you become more prosperous because you make more money. And then of course, there's other benefits to businesses being in areas when they're growing as well. They can attract more businesses, and that's a lot of the whole notions of clusters. Is just like people, organizations, businesses locating in a very often concentrated region or area, and so it does create this like positive or this virtuous cycle where by a business doing really well, it attracts other firms that want to be near it, people who want to work for that company, and then money. There's capital because there's investment opportunities in the area. From an economic perspective, it's a lot of jobs and money, and but that also then, of course, creates other opportunities because there's tax revenue that comes from that. So governments are able to provide amenities, whether it's like your parks or recreation, better transit, maybe housing. So it creates this really great virtuous cycle. That virtuous cycle that Dorinda mentioned isn't new. As Paul explains, it's something that's existed since humans started coming together centuries ago. Clusters, it's, it's not a new thing. I mean, we've as humans, we've been clustering for a long time. If you ever look at sort of NASA's uh, The World at Night image, where you see uh, where, where humans have located, it's not uniform, right? There's specific dots, right? So as humans, we've been clustering for a long time, and we call that cities. And that's because there's a unique thing that happens when you cluster, and that's usually an increase in opportunity. 
access to opportunity. So this is why people come to places like, like cities. There's more there. And uh, clusters enable the same thing. They, they focus on, well, what, what you end up with clusters, you end up with a high level of diversity. And when you have a bunch of companies working in the same place, what they end up doing is they start to specialize. So you end up with a place that has lots of stuff and lots of different stuff. And when you have a combination of lots of stuff, lots of different stuff, and the ability to connect or find or discover those things, that's usually when innovation shows up. As Paul highlighted, we've been unknowingly developing clusters for centuries. Yet, like everything clusters related, nothing is that straightforward. Clusters theory, the study and purposeful development of clusters, is a relatively new phenomenon, even if its roots date back to the 19th century. Confused? Melissa's going to explain. In terms of actually identifying the activity and sort of writing it down, it all kind of leads back to Alfred Marshall. So Alfred Marshall in the 1870s, he saw in England what he termed sort of industrial districts. So he said that these were concentrations of specialized industries in a particular locality. And so he saw that type of supplier specialization within particular types of industries in England. And he identified really three reasons why groups of firms in a particular area would be near one another um, and would be more productive together than they would be separately. So, and these three things still hold true for today. So really those are about labor market pooling, the concentration of similar firms attract, uh, develop from the pool of labor and the pool of people with a common skill set. And also individual workers could feasibly minimize their risk of being located in a place and minimizing their risk of um, not having a job or you know, maintaining their job or getting advancement by being located in a place with many possible employers for their skill set. The second was supplier specialization, creating a good market for suppliers and provided the scale needed for suppliers to refine and specialize their expertise. And this in turn works to the productive advantage of their customers. And finally, the third thing is around knowledge spillover, the idea that ideas can move easily between individuals within the same industry. If one person goes to work for one organization, they learn some skills there, they go work for another organization of the same, in the same cluster, and they bring their knowledge, and then that happens in sort of a continuous basis. So Alfred Marshall identified that companies doing similar types of work in the same area creates a large pool of skilled workers. That means that businesses won't want for workers, while employees can easily move between jobs. And the more businesses in the area, the more companies need to specialize to stand out. Finally, all those workers with specialized skills moving between jobs, that increases the chances of new ideas emerging, spurring innovation, and hopefully entire new industries. Still, even armed with these observations, it took almost a century before Michael Porter came along and formally identified clusters as distinct economic units that could drive economies. So he's the person that really started and coined the term cluster themselves. So, you know, Michael Porter, um, who's a Harvard Business School professor, um, in the early 1990s really emerged as the important uh, management thinker in the world of business strategy 
and he published the book called The Competitive Advantage of Nations, where he described industry clusters as a product of four factors, which he called the diamond of competitive advantage. So these include factors of production. So if you think about your factors of production as being capital, labor, and how you use those factors of production from which all firms in the cluster can draw, such as skilled labor force, specialized infrastructure, and educational institutions. So the degree to which you're investing in those items will affect how successful your cluster is. The demand conditions being the presence of sophisticated and demanding local customers. So if you have a very sophisticated demand base within your uh, region, that will help the cluster firms compete more successfully in global markets uh, because they're just really demanding more sophisticated products. Third, the related and supporting industries. So having capable local-based suppliers that support the firms and that leads to innovation because the firms have to exchange information and knowledge about new processes and products that they're having. And finally, the firm context for strategy, structural and rivalry. If a firm competes with others in the same industry, they'll be more motivated to innovate to differentiate themselves from their rivals. All of these four elements were um, integral to understanding why industry clusters are more competitive than isolated firms. Clearly, having the right mix of businesses is an asset. But at the end of the day, explains Bethany Moore, Director of Research and Insights at Toronto Global, a group mandated with attracting foreign direct investment in the Toronto area. It's the location itself and the proximity between the actors that anchors any cluster. It's kind of the concentration of all of these ingredients in a place that becomes interesting um, because it just provides kind of the venue really for, um, for all of these interactions and connections to happen. Um, and, you know, people, people live in places. Businesses are located in places. Quality of life and livability is, is a huge aspect for attracting talent. And at, at the core, although you've got companies and regulators and venture capital firms, like at the core, it's all people that are doing these functions. So yes, quality of life, I think, does play a big role in it. But I think depending on the cluster, there are unique elements of certain clusters that would make them very likely to to happen outside of of these let's say core urban areas um and whether it's i don't know something maybe unique about like the mining industry like is something where you may not think that's always where you live but but just by lo location of where you need to be <laughs> to to mine there's there's going to be a cluster in and around there i think the benefit of proximity is is just that proximity. Um, it's kind of being able to, it's that exchange of knowledge and ideas that happens when you have a conversation with somebody, when you happen to see something, um, you know, because you you visited a, a company and you met somebody else. And, and just, I think, having a lot of those pieces in one place just makes it a little bit easier for those knowledge transfers to happen. You know, you could even take take the example of, of a conference, which would be like a you know a hyper localized activity, and it's just the fact that you are in you know a conference room, sitting beside somebody and happen to have a conversation that a light bulb will go off. 
Bethany conveniently brought up the sort of knowledge spillovers that occur at events like conferences, which brings us to the TCI Network Global Conference on Clusters. Hosted by the Institute in October, it's Dorinda's hope that the phenomenon that Bethany just described takes hold at this year's conference, creating knowledge spillovers that will benefit clusters across Canada and North America. We really felt that this was a time to bring a clusters conference where there's basically a bunch of experts coming together um, to Toronto, where there's, I think, an, a huge appetite to learn, but also to make the connections between different people who have done this for decades, um, or even cluster managers who want to develop like trade relationships or want to partner together on different initiatives. And it's also in some ways a moment to to celebrate what's here as well. It's a really it's been a really great reason to bring different clusters actors together, whether it's like firms, governments, organizations, to figure out okay, what is our cluster story? What do we have to actually sell to the world? and get them to start to collaborate. And we've, we're, we're seeing that even in the planning of our conference. It's pretty incredible to see competing jurisdictions working together to sell a cluster. That's the end of this episode of Clusters and Competitiveness. This is just the first in a series of podcasts exploring some of the most asked questions about clusters, as well as many of the issues currently facing their growth, both in Canada and across the globe. Clusters and Competitiveness is produced by the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, a Canadian think tank focused on raising the competitiveness and prosperity of the province of Ontario. The Institute is also the host of the 21st Century TCI Network Global Conference on Clusters, taking place in Toronto from October 16th to 18th, 2018. For more details, visit www.tci2018.org. Once again, I'm Ian Gormley. On behalf of myself, ICP, and everyone involved with the 21st TCI Network Global Conference, thanks for listening. Music